In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis discusses the loss of his wife. The book has caused controversy because he's doubting throughout the entirety of the book. And he wrote this. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, God, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. This is what many people here right now feel like. That, that you've been faithful to the Lord and when you go to him, all that you experience is a door slamming in your face with the bolts locking behind. This is what we feel like when we're in the midst of tragedy, when we're in the midst of suffering. Door after door slamming in our face. This morning, we're going to examine a text that you are most familiar with, uh, probably, that, that you've read, that you've studied, that you've seen put on flannel boards in Sunday school. You've seen and heard this passage, but I hope that you see it not just as a story, not just as something of a, of a good Bible character who, who, who suffers and then he comes back and he, he rises to prominence. No. Instead, I hope that you see God's goodness and his faithfulness I don't want you to be like Joseph in this. He's already shown that he's not someone that we should emulate. Rather, if you can relate to his suffering, and many of you right now can, I hope that you see that there's hope. That there's hope at the end of your suffering, that, that your suffering serves a purpose, even when you don't realize it. Whether you're in a pit mourning the loss of a loved one, or hurting for some other reason, and you don't understand why, I pray that this passage that we just read will comfort your heart, will soothe your soul. With that said, let's dive into the passage this morning. In verses 12 through 17, we see Joseph being given a job. There's nothing strange happening here except that his brothers are reported to be in Shechem. Now, if you remember in chapters 33 and 34, Shechem is a place that's not so positive to Jacob's family. It's not a good place for them in their memory, and their family was scarred because of what happened there. But Jacob tells Joseph, your brothers are gone, go find them. See, we know what's in their hearts because we've seen this. We know that they hate their brother. They, they despise Joseph. And then when Joseph comes and says, hey, look at my coat that my father, I'm the favorite that our father gave to me, they hate him even more. But Jacob and Joseph don't know this yet. We know because we've read that part, but this is just in their thoughts and in conversations away from those two. And their hate grows, but Jacob and Joseph don't recognize this. Because there's no hesitancy to send Joseph out. The, the brothers must have hidden this pretty well, right? That, that if you hate someone, usually it comes out. But Jacob doesn't know this. Joseph doesn't know this. 
say, well, how do you know this? Because why in the world would Jacob send Joseph out if he knew that they hated him? This wasn't a trip around the corner either. This was leaving Hebron, which was 20 miles south of Jerusalem, going to Shechem, which was 30 miles north of Jerusalem. This is a 50-mile trip. But when Joseph arrives in Shechem, he can't find his brothers. He, he meets a man in a field and says, hey, I'm looking for a, a caravan. I'm looking for my family, my brothers. Do you know where they are? He said, yes, they're in Dothan, which was another 14 miles away. It would have taken about a week in total to get there. And you think, well, 60 miles, it's about an hour for us. Not when you're walking or you're riding on a donkey and you're carrying tents and food and, and you have a, a caravan of people. Day upon day of traveling. Joseph and his traveling party would have to set up camp every night. They'd have to tear it down in the morning. They'd have to, to bring food and, and rations and supplies. Again, it seems as if Jacob and Joseph have no earthly idea that their sons and brothers hate them. Then we see a plot being hatched. Look at verses 18 through 22. Then they, the brothers, saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dream. But when Reuben heard this, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit into the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And Reuben thought that he would go rescue him later. Every one of his brothers, Joseph's brothers, save for Reuben, had decided to murder him. Have you seen movies or read books where a group of villains are so bloodthirsty in their conspiracy to kill someone that no amount of reasoning, no amount of pleading changes their mind. They are bent on doing what they want to do. And these brothers, except for Reuben, they want to kill Joseph. When they saw Joseph coming into the field, they conspired to kill him. They hated him before, but that was just a topic of discussion. It was, it was kind of like how, how all of us at some point have said to other coworkers, man, I wish I could tell our boss what I really feel about him, right? We've all thought that. We've all, we've all wanted to, to speak our mind, but we have better sense than to do it. And so for a long time, the brothers hated Joseph. They, they had wanted nothing to do with this boy. They, they conspired against him, but they really didn't act on it. But now, they're 60-something miles away from home, and they see him walking across the field. And their rage comes out. And look at what they say about him in verse 19. He says, here comes the dreamer. They weren't being nice. They were mocking Joseph. His dreams that he said that one day you will bow down to me, which does come true. But when he told them those dreams, their, their hatred, their rage boiled on the inside. They, they wanted nothing to do with this brother other than to get rid of him. 
Now, if Joseph, you may ask this, well, if he would have just never shared his dreams, if he would have just kept those inside, would these events have happened? We'll see this morning how God was sovereignly orchestrating all of this and overseeing these events for his purposes and for his glory. But practically speaking, could Joseph have avoided this part? Well, we all make decisions, don't we? We can look back at our lives and we've, every single one of us has made decisions that come back to bite us and to haunt us. I think of the amount of times that I found myself sitting in the principal's office and the amount of times that my father had to come and rescue me out of the clutches of those horrible, horrible principals. They, they were actually really nice. It was me. And I remember all of those times that, that I could have made a different decision, but instead I went my own way and I found myself in trouble, in a pit. But the question that I've asked myself over the years, would I be where I'm at? Would I be the person that I am now? Would I have the life that I have now and the, the experiences that I do and the, the ability to do what I do if I didn't do those things? See, those things that I did wrong, they were sin, but they shaped me. They, they molded me and they gave me an experience so that I could be a pastor, that I could be a husband, that I could be a father, that I could be a follower of Christ even better. Because I remember what I did. It molded me. And Joseph certainly didn't want to end up where he did. But as we know in the story, just a few chapters from now, the events that happened to Joseph, God used those for him to be a blessing to others, including his brothers. See, Joseph is being molded, even in the pits, even at the worst possible times of his life. He is being molded and shaped, and he's becoming the man that God wants him to be. But he has to go through these tragedies first. All that to say, Joseph didn't help himself when he shared his dreams, did he? In verse 20, his brothers decide to throw him in a pit and they tell people uh, that he had been devoured by an animal. They're mocking his dreams, he said, and, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. <laughs> Joseph told us that we're going to bow down to him. Well, we're showing him now. He's literally under our feet. We'll see what happens to him. They're putting Joseph's dreams to the test, and ultimately they're putting God to the test because God gave Joseph these dreams that one day you will be in authority. Then Reuben comes into the picture. Now remember, Reuben is the, the guy that committed incest with his father's concubine. Here, he actually does something admirable. Well, sort of. He says, well, we shouldn't kill him. Say, hero of the story, save your brother. No, no, not so quiet. He says this, then let's throw him in a pit instead. Now, if you're comparing whether you'd rather be murdered by your brothers or thrown into a pit, I think it's safe to say that we'd all choose the pit. None of us want to be beaten and, and all of that, so we would choose to be thrown down in a pit, but it's still not a good story. Neither is a great option. He could have tried, Reuben could have tried to stop this, but instead he didn't. And the Bible really doesn't tell us why. 
Maybe he had compassion for Joseph. Maybe he was worried that if he spoke up for Joseph and did the right thing, and this is still true of us today, that sometimes if we speak up and do the right thing, we're going to end up on the wrong side of the story. Maybe you speak up at your job and at your manager, their wrath comes down on you. Maybe you, you defend someone that you know is being harmed or, or facing some problem that they don't deserve and you end up feeling the wrath as well. Whatever his reasoning, at least he had some sense that what was happening wasn't right. Reuben proposed that they throw Joseph into the pit and secretly he was going to come and grab Joseph and take him back to his father to the protection. But that's not what's going to happen. In verses 23 through 28, Joseph is sold into slavery. Verse 23 says that they stripped the robe off of Joseph. Now, the Hebrew word for the, the, the act of stripping a robe off uh, could mean just ripping it off, taking it off, but it's also used in the Old Testament to mean flay, like you flay an animal. The idea is not so much that they're flaying Joseph, but the violence and the force with which they ripped off that robe. There's physical pain. Add to that, they throw him in a pit. It, it, it's, it's deep enough to ensure that Joseph can't get out, so it's safe to say they didn't gently lower him down. This was an assault. This was a brutal beating that they did to their brother. But think about the psychological pain Joseph was going through as well. He was probably surprised at what happened. This was a, an attack that he wasn't anticipating. Remember, he, he didn't hesitate to travel 60-something miles to go get his brothers. And all of a sudden, they're attacking him like wolves. Joseph is shocked. And part of that pain was the removal of the robe. Now, if, if, if I came to you and I ripped a, a robe or a jacket off of you, you're, you're going to be stunned, but it's not going to be the end of your world. But think about the situation Joseph was in. He is certain that he's about to die. And what does he think? My family? My father? And as they're ripping his robe off, he's thinking, that's the one thing that I have for my father that can bring me comfort. You say, what's well, a robe? Every single one of us has something that our father or mother or grandparents gave to us that we would be devastated if someone came and ripped it out and broke. This was Joseph's last possession, his prized robe. And they ripped it off. His life is flashing before his eyes. And so what do the brothers do? They throw him into a pit. Do you notice what they do next? They sit down and eat. Do you remember years ago, there was a man in Cleveland who had kidnapped three girls, women, and kept them in chains locked up for years in his home. And one day, one of the girls was able to escape and ran to a neighbor's house and said, help, help. And this man had locked these three women in chains, abused them, and did all sorts of horrific things. And you think that this man lived a relatively normal life. He 
ate at the kitchen table when he had women in a dungeon underneath his house. And the brothers do this. It's callous. It's, it's inhumane. They show no remorse. They, they are not sorry for what they've done. In fact, they are eating. They're celebrating. This is evil. This is what Joseph's brothers did. They sat down to eat while they listened to the cries of their brother. Genesis 42, 21, when they interact again years later, the brothers say this, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother. They didn't know they were talking to Joseph. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. The brothers were going to leave him in a pit to die. Any remains would be eaten by wild animals, so all that would be left were, were bones in a pit that no one would ever see. But God had a different plan in mind. Look at beginning in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat, and they, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Can't be sure of what Judah is thinking here. Maybe he wants a prophet. Maybe he had a moment of clear thinking like Reuben had. Guys, we, we, we really can't do this. He, he's our brother. We, we've talked about killing him, but we, we just can't do this. And who comes forward? A caravan of those who are outside of the family of God. They're from the, the family of Ishmael, and they're heading down to Egypt. And so the thought comes to their mind, let's sell Joseph. That way we don't have to kill him. We can make a little bit of money off of it, and he will be gone forever because he's never going to come back from his Egypt. For the moment, this seems like it would solve all their problems. See, the brothers then, they've already sinned against Joseph. Now they're going to sin against their father by lying to them. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify where, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol with my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Reuben comes back and says, where's our, where's our brother? Where's Joseph? And the brothers are silent. No answer. 
Maybe they've recognized what they've done and it's too late to fix things. Uh, More likely they're sorry or they're not sorry for what they did to Joseph, but they're afraid of being caught. They're worried about what would happen if someone found out that they had kidnapped their brother and sold him into slavery. Throughout Genesis, I'm reminded so much of my own childhood, especially in school. Um, I, I once had a teacher who yelled at me and Maybe it was a scream, I don't know, it was a yell. Because every time I did something wrong, like not answers wrong, but when I did something I shouldn't have done, disrupting the class, making a joke, saying inappropriate things, I'd always say, I'm sorry. And the teacher looked at me one day and said, you're not sorry, stop saying sorry. He said, you're only sorry that you got caught. You're only sorry that you're in trouble now. And he was true, it was right. This is the the same thing I think the brothers are worried about. They're they're not sorry for what they've done. They're worried about what could happen if they get caught. So they come up with a story that they'll tell their father. They dip the robe in blood and give it to Jacob, making it seem like an animal had devoured his son. Do you remember in Genesis 27... Jacob tricked Isaac in order to get the blessing that belonged to Esau. Listen, and, and, and can make the connections here. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to him mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. And go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were in her house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put delicious food on the bread which she had prepared in the hands of her son Jacob. Jacob deceived his father while wearing Esau's clothes and the skin of a young goat on his neck. Now, Jacob's sons trick him with Joseph's clothes and blood from a goat. They're not learning anything, are they? This is a a family history that keeps coming around and around. This is exactly what happened is happening again and again. And so the sons went back to Jacob and lied to him about what happened. And Jacob mourned the loss of his son. Now what I want you to see in this passage today is not just this story. It's a wild story. It's a tragic story. But what I want you to see is that even in the midst of that tragedy, God is still working. So many times in the midst of tragedy, when we're facing difficult times, uh, we, we may be tempted to think that God has abandoned us or he, he's turned away from us for a season. It's easy to think that. God, I, I read my Bible every day. I 
come to church, I give, I serve, I sing, I lead, I disciple, I do all of those things for you, God. Why are you doing this to me right now? Why is this happening to me? We all ask that question. Years ago, I was flying from Florida to California. And as we made our way across Texas, um, we, we were flying at 30,000 feet, and um, we passed right next to a thunderstorm. And it was a massive thunderstorm. And it, it almost looked like you could reach out if you could open a window without being sucked out, but it, it looked like you could almost reach out and touch the clouds. But the perspective that I got, Seeing a thunderstorm at 30,000 feet, we're flying equal to this thunderstorm. I'm looking out the window, and I'm seeing these lightning bolts constantly, one after the other, dozens at the same time, just crash, crash, crash. And see, I never really understood a thunderstorm by looking up. You see a lightning bolt, you see a few, but you don't see 50 miles away when the storm is raging there as well. But when you're up at 30,000 feet, you see the whole thing. My perspective changed when I could see the entire picture, when I could see all that was happening. I could see that this lightning and this thunderstorm had a beginning and an end, and it had boundaries, and it was moving, and it was lightning striking everywhere. I could see everything. See, Joseph had a dream, but he didn't fully understand what God was doing in his life. He, he didn't understand why he was thrown into a well, why he was beaten by his brothers, why, why he was sold into slavery. And like me looking up at a storm, all that Joseph could see what was directly above him. In his moment of tragedy, all that he could see was what was going on around him. He could see this storm. He was surrounded by it. Joseph needed a better view. And I keep thinking, we need a better view too, don't we? When tragedy strikes, we look to survive. It, it, it's so hard to recognize that maybe, just maybe, God is at work in the middle of our difficulties. Think about everything else you know about Joseph. And I want you to see how God's hand is working in this. If Joseph was never sold into slavery, he would never have gone to Egypt. If he never went to Egypt, he would never work or go to prison. And we'll see that next week. If Joseph had never gone to prison, he would never get to encounter Pharaoh. If he didn't encounter Pharaoh, he never rises to a position of authority. And if that doesn't happen, many, many people will die of starvation, including his own family. And if his family in Canaan die from the famine, the plan line for Jesus is wrecked. Now, I'm not saying that your suffering is any worse or any easier than what Joseph went through. Suffering is all relative, and, and we all have a, a different level of what is too much. What I am saying is that for those who have been brought into the family of God, God works all things for his good and for our good. Those who are Christians will likely, who aren't Christians, will likely push back and say, well, I can't worship a God who, who allows people to suffer. How can suffering be good? If you haven't asked that question, you're probably not thinking enough about this stuff. Some will, will say to us, and they'll say, well, well, we'll grant you that God allows suffering. He doesn't do it, but maybe he allows it. 
Why would God allow Joseph to, to suffer in a pit and to be a slave and to go to prison, to be falsely accused? Why? Some people will say, well, this proves that God doesn't exist because if anybody suffers, then a loving, caring God would never allow that to happen. So why do we suffer? Why? Why? Does God allow this to happen? Well, sometimes our suffering is disciplined from God. Hebrews says that God disciplines the ones he loves. There are other reasons. Maybe, maybe to be a testimony to others. We see that in Hebrews 11. Maybe it's to re rely more on God. We see that in the entirety of the book of Job. Maybe it's to know Christ more, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Maybe it's to prepare fathers for the, or followers for the, uh, of Christ for the glory of heaven. This is 2 Corinthians 4. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing, us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For someone in the metaphorical pit like Joseph, it's hard to accept these things. When you're in the middle of a thunderstorm, it is impossible to think, or it's not possible, to think about the ending and the beginning. You are surrounded by chaos. Everything in your life seems to be upended, and all that you want is some peace and calm, and you can't get out. Maybe you intellectually know these passages to be true. Maybe you try to repeat them, and it doesn't do any good. You just want God to fix whatever mess you're in. And Joseph probably pleaded, God, fix this. Am I not part of your line? Am I not important to your story? God, can you just fix this? And you may accept these, but they're not true. You, uh, you may be wondering why you're still suffering. To be honest, there's a lot that we just don't know. Why, why, why do babies die in the womb or in infancy? Why do people die at a young age? Why is there disease and famine and illness? Why is there so much suffering and war? Why? And when you feel these thoughts bubbling up inside, read Job chapter 38. Job suffered so much, he lost his children, he lost his possessions and his health and he asked the same questions that you and I ask. God, where are you? God, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And listen to what God says. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, where were you when I did all of this? You are a man. You are a mortal. You are a creature. You are my own creation. I am the ruler of all things. Everything is in the palm of my hands. Who are you to question my judgments? This means that Job didn't understand his suffering just like we don't. But God had a plan for Job's suffering, didn't he? Just like he has for us. There is no way that Joseph was comfortable with being uh, in his situation. He didn't deserve to be beaten and, and sold into slavery. And you can imagine him saying, God, why me? In Romans 5, Paul says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you remember that when you're suffering? 
That God loved you more than you can imagine, so much so that he sent his son that to live and to die for you? All Joseph had at this moment, he was stripped naked. All that he had at this moment was the promise of God. Joseph didn't have the full gospel laid out for him. He had the promised Messiah, but God was still unfolding his story and using Joseph to be a very important part of the story. But church, we have that promised Messiah. We have the one who who gave everything for us, that that, that came to be part of us, to be us, to, to live for us and die for us and to return, to gather us together. We know the end of the story. We know that God is victorious. Again, look at Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we also, or we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because of our suffering, we have hope. The suffering that we go through, the suffering that Joseph goes through, it pushes us and pushes us and pushes us until we have that hope in Christ. And the sufferings that you are going through right now, some of which no one knows, it's pushing you, believer, Christian, it's pushing you to rely on Christ even more than before. There may be no one who knows the troubles that you've experienced. God knows. He knows about you. He knows all the stuff that you don't understand, and he cares for his children. For those who don't know Jesus, God offers you hope and something better. And he offers freedom from the guilt that you have earned. He doesn't promise that your suffering will end, but he does promise that your suffering comes with a purpose. And I want to give you the reality of this. You may never understand the side of heaven why God allowed this to happen to you. you. You may plead with God, why? Why is this happening? Why am I suffering so much? And you may never understand. But at the moment when Joseph was down in that pit, do you think he understood? That one day he will rise to be a, a, a high-ranking official in Egypt. He's a foreigner, comes to Egypt, and he saves lives. God's purpose was working at each turn of events. And for the Christian, we see this promise in Romans chapter 8, that God works all things for our good. Again, not our good, not our our definition of good, but for our good by God's definition. It's molding us and shaping us to be more conformed to his character. And the suffering that produces endurance. And the endurance produces character and character produces hope. God is using our suffering to make us rely on him even more. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Would you pray with me?